Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Clive Fandango. Now, I'm the resident Calvinist here on God is Open, and I have been invited today to give the Calvinist case against open theism. We're going to turn to the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Because open theism is a tricky term, we need to first understand what we're talking about. Open theism. Open theism is a thesis that because God loves us and desires that we freely choose to reciprocate his love, he has made his knowledge of and plans for the future conditional upon our actions. Isn't that nice? God so much loves us and puts so much value in us that uh, he strips himself of his omniscience. This is this voluntary action of, of not having knowledge of the future. Though omniscient, God does not know what we'll freely do in the future. Notice how this is salvaging free will. This, this is an attempt to salvage free will. Though omnipotent, he has chosen to invite us to freely collaborate with him in governing and developing his creation. Notice that, that the redefinition of words no longer is omniscience, omniscience of all facts. Now it's this omniscience where he's gaining knowledge. Now, now omnipotence is not uh, having power over all things. Now he's divesting himself of his sovereignty. Read this, thereby also allowing us the freedom to thwart his hopes for us. God can be thwarted. Is that a biblical concept? God desires that each of us freely enter into a loving and dynamic personal relationship with him. And he has therefore left it open to us to choose for or against his will. Notice how dependent on emotions this definition is. How open theists want a God like them. They want a God to suffer with them and to interact with them, to be like them, to learn information with them. It's, it's this emotional attempt to pull God down to our level, to, to create him in our image. You know, like God creates man in his image, but open theists want to create God in our image. They're pulling God down. Is this the biblical picture that we get throughout the text? Let's turn to the Bible and see. We'll turn to Isaiah. Isaiah talks about who God is inherently. It says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, Isaiah 55, 9, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Notice what's going on here. God is separating himself from mankind. God is above mankind. Mankind is down below. The Bible throughout uses uh, imagery such as man is grass that wither away, but God is eternal. God lasts forever. God, God is the ultimate. He has no comparison. Let's read Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40, 18. To whom will you liken God, or what likeness compare him? It's, it's wrong to compare God to man. It's wrong to bring God to our level. That's what these verses are talking about. God is so far above us that, uh, that any comparison is just, is just not contemplated by these authors. That's, that's not their idea. Switching to Romans, Paul reinforces these ideas. He says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man. Notice that language. The immortal God is being brought low into images resembling mortal man. Does that sound like open theism that we just read? Where God needs to be like us. God needs to learn with us. God needs to grow with us. God needs to have emotions like that. Is that the biblical picture of God? Or is God, as the biblical authors described, so far above us that those those aren't even categorically related. Not only does God 
and not learn with us, but he knows everything. Not only does God not suffer emotions like us, and Paul writes that God has no need of anything. You know, we can't give something to God to make him better. This is the biblical picture of God, and it's reinforced throughout the text. Exodus 3, 14, he says, I am who I am. Uh, this is this is a statement about ontology. He's talking about his essential nature, which is pure actuality, pure simplistic. He is a pure being. And to defile him, to bring him down low to our level, you're turning him into the creation rather than the creator. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Open theists say God changes. God changes all the time, every day, at every moment. It's not the biblical picture of God. Malachi says, no, God doesn't change. This is reinforced by James. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't change. God stays the same. God stays constant. We can have faith in God that God will accomplish because he will not change. The open theists don't have that confidence and they'll readily admit it when you ask them that they, they can't have that confidence that we have in an immutable unchanging God. Instead, they want to focus on these texts and the texts that are found in narratives. Let's switch to one of their favorite proof texts, 1 Samuel 15. So 1 Samuel 15, uh, King Saul, he fights the Amaleks. He doesn't destroy them all. And, and the text reads that God is angry. And this is the text that says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. This is capped off at the end of the chapter. 1 Samuel 15, 35, it says, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the end of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. Open theists will say, look, this is, this is God. God is repenting. But one thing that they, they tend to miss is this verse in the middle, 1 Samuel 15, 29. This is talking about God's immutable nature again. Uh, James talks about it. Isaiah talks about it. We've uh, Exodus uh, three talks about it. It says, and the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. Notice this theme that God is not a man. God is above a man. As the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is above us. God is not intermixed in the middle of us, suffering with us and learning with us. Instead, God is not a man. God does not regret. So what do these regret passages mean? Well, a couple things. We have to understand that uh, how language works. You know, language is, doesn't work on these hard and fast rules where where everything has to be taken literally. Jesus says, I am a door. Uh, what is he saying? Is he made out of wood and you have to open him and you shut him behind you, something like me. Jesus is not talking about that. He's talking idiomatically. And in, in the Bible, these are called anthropomorphisms. How do we know it's an anthropomorphism in this case? In 1 Samuel 15, the proof text about God regretting making Saul king Wonder what happens when we turn back two chapters to 1 Samuel 13, 14. This is God talking to Saul again. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Wait a minute. I thought it was 1 Samuel 15 where God figured out that he was no longer to continue Saul's dynasty, where he's ripping the kingdom away from Saul. But here we have it happening 
two chapters earlier. Two chapters earlier, it's stripped from him. And then uh, we, we want to claim that the text really supports the idea that it actually happened in chapter 15. No, chapter 14 is when God it says here, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. This is talking about King David. This has already happened. This has already happened by 1 Samuel 15. So what's this new regret? Where's that coming from? What we have to understand is how language works. Now, language, again, doesn't work in hard and fast rules. We have a lot of access to this anthropomorphism in the Bible. Cain kills Abel, and what happens? The blood cries from the ground. We have, in Psalms, we got wisdom, and wisdom is described as making the world, creating everything that exists. There, there's, there's a long section that personifies wisdom, and we can understand what that means. We can read it naturally and understand it's not talking about an actual character. You know, it's a personification. It's an anthropomorphism. And again, um, there's, there's mountains and the mountains praise God. Do mountains have vocal cords? Do mountains scream out or anything like that? No, this is just the normal use of language. It's anthropomorphic. So what does this anthropomorphic language mean? Of course, when the blood cries out, what, what's actually happening is this blood on the ground shows that justice is needed. It's an illustration. And uh, the, this repentance, what is that doing? It's showing a change in process. God no longer is going to use Saul. Now he's going to use David. In Genesis 6, when God repents, he's no longer going to go with these wicked men. He's going to go with Noah. It's a procedural change. That, that's what it signifies. And you got to keep in mind, this anthropomorphic language is throughout the Bible. The Bible inherently, fundamentally, is anthropomorphic. It's written by men. Do we have access to the divine mind? Remember back to Isaiah, we do not have access to the divine mind. We have to speak, we have to communicate in the language of human beings to human beings so that people could just understand the basics, understand who God is at, at a simple level, not at a, this spiritual level. Paul writes that once we get to heaven, uh, we, we see now through, through a dark lens, but we will get an enlightening when we go to heaven. We'll get this spiritual knowledge when we get to heaven. But for now, we are stuck with humans communicating to humans in human languages for human purposes. And that's what's going on here. So it's a huge mistake to take of what is, is pretty clearly anthropomorphic language and make it literal. Uh, the Bible says that God has hands, that God has wings. Is that true? Is that accurate? No. Wings signify protection. Hands signify power. It's not talking about body parts. God does not have body parts. As, as we know, as we know in the New Testament, it says God is a spirit. God is spirit. He doesn't have body parts. He's not material or anything like that. Although the Bible throughout talks about God's hands and wings and eyes throughout the Bible. Uh, it, that's just how language works. It, it's, it's anthropomorphic language. We, we see it. We deal with it throughout the Bible. If you notice the theme that we're laying out, God is above us. God is other than us. God is not on the level of creation. God is the creator, not the created. There's a creator-creature distinction that open theists tear down. That's what makes open theism so dangerous. Instead of a God who knows all things, it's a God who learns, regardless of their redefinition of the word. That's, that's not true to classical omniscience. That's a rejection of classical Christianity. All the church fathers believed in it. All the church fathers believed in this omniscience that is now being redefined in order to salvage the word. Don't let them trick you by redefining that word. Omniscient means knowing all true propositions, not gaining knowledge. Gaining knowledge is the opposite of omniscience. Turning to Revelation 1.8, God 
This is God talking. I am the Alpha and Omega. Notice that God is both the Alpha and the Omega. First and last letter of the Greek alphabet, God is the beginning and the end. At the same time, in the same sense, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. Notice this definition. God not only was and currently was and currently is and currently is to come. This is God defining his timelessness. God is not subject to time as we know it. God is eternal. God is immutable. God is above us. We best not break that creator-creature distinction. Not only is God currently was, and currently is, and currently future, there's no distinctions in time with God. That's what he's going for here. He's teaching us about his nature. These are didactic texts to be distinguished from the narrative text, which maybe describes some sort of action in, in the context of a story. And the language is a lot more flexible and loose because what's it trying to communicate? It's not trying to communicate the ontology of God, not what's going on there. It's speaking in anthropomorphic terms to mankind, not the didactic text. Didactic text just means teaching text, text that talk about God as he is in himself. Uh, it says, I, the Lord, do not change. Oh, that's pretty straightforward. It says, I am the Alpha and Omega. Yeah, it makes sense. Who is, who was, and is to come Almighty. And let's think back all the way to Isaiah, the trial of the false gods. One of the things that God, he, he hinges his reputation on is being able to accurately know the future. The, the false gods cannot do that. This is the challenge that's set up. It's a deity test that God sets up against the false gods to, to prove the false god from the true God. And what do the open theists do? They say God fails this test. God doesn't know what's actually going to happen in the future. We'll talk about very specific prophecies that he makes that do come true, come about in very meticulous detail. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But notice this test. Remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind your transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. Notice creator creature distinction. God is above us. God is not the created creature. He's not suffering with us, learning with us. He says, I am God and there's no other and there's none like me. We are not like God. Let's get that out of our minds. This is destroying who God is. Declaring end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel will stand, I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, I'll bring it to pass. I have purposed, I will will to do it. And open theists, remember our definition. We turn back to our definition. They say they can thwart God. And God says, my counsel will stand. No one can compare to me. No one can talk back to God. As Paul says, who, who will answer God and say, why do you do these things? Uh, Paul talks about this all the time, that God's will is not going to be thwarted by man. Man can't stand up to God. God's will is ultimate. But going back to the knowledge test, the God hinges his deity on his knowledge. And this is not isolated. We turn to the New Testament and Jesus does this as well. And Jesus says this in John 13, 19. He says, I am telling you this now, just what I just said, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Notice the callback to Isaiah. This is a deity claim. Jesus is claiming to be divine based on omniscience. An open theist deny this to Jesus. They deny it to God. Both Jesus and God fail this test. They don't know what's going to happen. No, no. When you do that, you do a lot of damage to the text. You're claiming that these are not deity texts and Jesus is not divine. And you get on pretty shaky territory there. 
But God does predict the future, and it happens all the time, and in precise details, very by very minute things. Turning to Daniel 11 will illustrate this very, very meticulously. And Daniel 11, we, we could go through it line by line. I suggest anyone just Google it, pull it up, and look at commentary. And it talks about kings arising. It talks about their motivation and, and what their characters are going to be and what they're going to do and what their daughters are going to do. And, and it's very explicit and detailed. And it all comes about uh, in detail. It's, it's not what do open theists say that God's controlling these people like puppets? What's with free will then? There, there's no free will in this scenario. There's there's nothing that could deviate. And if man's this predictable, um, then there goes all notion that we can do what we want, that we're not uh, just simple creatures that uh, just perform according that were his marionettes. Is that what's going on here to the open theist that he's, he's forcing these people, pulling their strings and forcing them to do the, the, these meticulous details uh, hundreds, hundreds of years in advance of when they actually happened. But no. And no, Daniel 11 is very detailed. It describes the things that happened in detail hundreds of years into the future. It talks about individuals and their motivations and, and sequence of events, and it all comes to pass as described. The detail plus the time frame is a pretty good evidence that, yeah, as, as the Bible claims, that God knows all things. And you'll find this claim throughout the Bible, God knows all things. 1 John 3.20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. God knows everything. Let's now turn to Psalms 147.5. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Some of the better translations put this as God's understanding is infinite. It, it just can't be measured. It is so far above us. James Dozel he talks about this and he talks about how this is one of the proofs of God's otherness, that God God is not doesn't have understanding like us. God doesn't have knowledge like us. It's categorically different than us. It's it's not this knowledge of facts or anything, but it's inherent in God. It's this infinite type of knowledge, not this knowledge that is limited that man has. It's not that God just has a ton more knowledge than us. God just, just knows more than us, but uh, there's a limit to it. No, categorically, God's knowledge is on a different level. Isaiah 40, 28, Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is everlasting, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Again, this is talking about this infinite language, this other category, the creator-creature distinction. I hope I'm emphasizing that enough because that's the main danger in open theism is breaking down that barrier, creator-creature distinction. Acts 15, 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. All his works he knows from all eternity. Remember, we talked about God's timelessness. We talked about his omniscience. He doesn't gain new information. He knows everything that's going to happen in detail. Turn back to Daniel 11. He describes his knowledge. He hinges his Godhead on his knowledge in Isaiah. This is just reinforcing the same facts. Acts 15, 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. We find a lot of language like this. Just keep keep this in mind. Keep this in mind. You have the statements about known from before the foundation of the world. Jesus. Jesus is predestined before the foundation of the world to be a sacrifice for mankind. This language is common. This language is in the Bible. This idea that all things all things are in God's mind. He doesn't learn. He doesn't acquire new information. That's not a biblical concept of who God is. It just isn't. 
We briefly highlighted the biblical case against open theism. It's not biblical. It destroys the creator-creature distinction. It doesn't line up with the text or how to read the text. They don't understand the use of anthropomorphic language. They don't understand the function. They, they prioritize the wrong parts of the text. They don't prioritize the didactic over the narrative. And that's functionally functionally incorrect. They just don't understand how language works at a fundamental level, how all language is anthropomorphic, and it needs to be. We can't talk about God in human language. It, it doesn't work like that. It, the classical concept is known as ineffability, that we just can't communicate using human language adequately about God. We can't understand him in his essence. But that that's a little deep. I don't think we're going to get into that too much right now. But let's switch over to open theist literature and figure out why they believe what they believe. A lot of times you'll find very emotional stories that are, are put together in, in these texts. The Thomas J. Ords of the world will have, have a lot of uh, people describing their pain and suffering in their life. Uh, John Sanders opens his book with finding out his brother had died. Boyd, in his introduction, look at this. Uh, I, if you didn't think that uh, Murphy's Law, is that the one where everyone just defaults to Hitler right away? He says this, even more troubling, if God foreknew that Adolf Hitler would send six million Jews to their death, why did he go ahead and create man like that? Notice this. It's an emotional appeal. He's trying to say open theism is true because of feelings. Feelings. Facts, not feelings. That's what I would really point you to. Remember what Paul says, man, who are you to reply against God? No one can reply against God. No one could take him to task and say, God, you are wrong. But that's what open theists do. And it, and it works. It's, it's effective to appeal to people's emotions, to sway them to open theism, pull them away from sound doctrine. Because, you know, people, people are pulled by their emotions, uh, logic, facts, reasons. It do doesn't work all the time. And this is open theists' main pull. They point to these stories. They point to these emotions. They fill their books with these types of emotional stories. Elseth, in his book, Did God Know? He points to a story of a young girl who's bitten by a snake uh, because this officer wanted to take her picture in, in Afghanistan. And uh, then the girl dies and, and he struggles and he becomes an atheist because he can't deal with the emotional feeling of why would all these things happen? But God has a reason. God says, known from eternity are all his works. God has a purpose for the world. And man, who are we to reply against God? This is the biblical position, as opposed to open theist position, who, which says that, yeah, you as a man can reply against God. And as a matter of fact, not only that, but God is like us. God suffers with us. That same thing that happened, uh, this Hitler killing the six million Jews, the little girl dying by the snake bite, John Sanders' brother dying in this automobile accident. You know, God just sits there and watches with us and he suffers with us. Why didn't God do anything in open theism? Can't he do it? If, if you could see it as it's happening, can't, can't he stop that from happening? You know, it's not free will if I just go save someone from a, a pool if they're drowning, you know, their theology implodes on itself. It's very emotionally based and they don't think through the ramifications of what they're offering the world. God is in the same moral conundrum in open theism that he is in Calvinism. But at least Calvinism has the Bible. We have the idea that no man can stand up against God. What God eternally has decided to do for his own greatest glory. That's It's another technical concept. We're not going to go into that right now. How God's glory is maximized by creation. Uh, what man does and, 
and uh, how man acts and how man behaves. And this is, this is God. This is God who knows from eternity all his works, what he does. Declaring the end from the beginning, his will will stand. Regardless of what Boyd says, regardless of what Sanders says, regardless of what any open theist says, God's will will stand. God's will will be exalted. And who are you, man, to reply against God? Let's just summarize real quickly what we've gone over so we can understand what's going on here with this concept of open theism, why open theism is an issue in today's world. Open theism is emotionally based. It, it appeals to our modern senses, our, our 21st century idea of who God should be. Oh, God should be suffering. God should be emotional. God should be fragile. God should suffer with us. But notice what it does. It breaks that creator-creature distinction. It pulls God down. Whereas the Bible says God is not a man, that he should change where the Bible says that there's no shadow of turning in God, where he talks about I am who I am. My fundamental essence is actuality. It's, it's, a, it's a statement about his ontology being pure actuality. As, as the philosophers say, his aseity. This is who God is. This is who the Bible claims God is. God is not man. As the heavens are from the earth, so is God's Thoughts away from our thoughts. His ways are away from our ways. Mankind is below God. Mankind cannot drag God down to our level. He can't stand up against God and say, why have you created me thus? As Paul says, this is Paul's, Paul's language, not mine. This, this is the picture of God of the Bible. This God who is other, this God who is supreme, this God who is the creator rather than the creature. And that is the danger in open theism, destroying the fundamental nature of who God is, and turning him into a created, changing being who goes along learning as we learn, suffering, suffering. Paul says God doesn't need anything from us. This is Paul's language in Acts to the pagan philosopher. And Paul says pretty explicitly, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. God doesn't need anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. God sustains all things. This language is throughout the Bible. Who God is, ontologically, fundamentally, God's nature is described in the Bible. And open theists undo that. And why? What do you gain? You gain some emotions. You gain some free will. Free will, as if, as if that's a value that's taught in the Bible, not used in the Bible. It's not a concept in the Bible. Instead, what you get in the Bible is God is sovereign. God's will will be accomplished. Man can't thwart God's will. Whatever God says will come to pass. And man, who are you to respond against God? Well, thank you for listening to this podcast today. This is uh, the Calvinist case against open theism. Like, comment, subscribe, hit the bell for notifications. And thank you for listening. Just, 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 just.